This is a Theology of podcast, exploring scripture, story, theology, and everything. I'm your host, Mark Moulter, and let's get started. This is our first episode, and we'll be talking about what theology is. My guest today is John Michael Longworth. He's a pastor in Rutland, Vermont, a member of the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans, and an all-around great guy. Thank you for joining us, John Michael. Thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate the invitation. I am uh, really excited about this because one of the roles that I serve um, both uh, in my local community and also in the order that I belong to is as a person who's trying to mentor others and um, help them figure out how to chart their course through their spiritual lives. I'm involved with the uh, Ministry of Formation in the order and I train street chaplains uh, here in Rutland, Vermont. So the idea of um, thinking more carefully but also more creatively about what theology is and what it could be is something that I think is pretty exciting. When we're talking about theology, there's a can of worms and I'm not sure where to begin. Um, and so it's always good to have a dictionary around. When we look at the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it says theology is the study of religious faith, practice, and experience, especially the study of God and God's relation to the world. And uh, I think all of us are thinking theologically uh, all the time, whether we uh, want to admit it or not. Oh, that's, yeah, that's definitely a reality. And there's so many frames and lenses that uh, affect how we think about God, like what kind of sources we're using, uh, what personal experiences we've had as a person, the scriptures we're reading, and the things that are our favorite things to think about. And, and then also, you know, how we decide to apply all of these understandings that we have come across. Yeah. So one of the things that I, in my own ex exploration of theology, has been, uh, was it Wesley talks about the four foundations of faith and talking about how we have scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. And all those are inform and, and help us understand what theology is. It would be lovely to imagine, just like a parent says that every kid is their favorite kid. <laughs> Like we could say, oh yeah, all four of these are super important to me, but is there one that for you, you find particularly compelling or that really guides your own experience of thinking about God? I mean, as, as a Lutheran, I, I grew up thinking about sola scriptura. And I think for me, kind of the, the two biggest foundations, I think for me are scripture. The stories of scripture are something always that I, I kind of go back to and think about. And then also, you know, experience. We all have different experiences, and I'm always surprised at how I can read the same story from Scripture, and depending on what my experience has been in the past you know, week or so, it certainly brings new insight and new light to that story and, and maybe how I think about God. So this is the funny thing about having an opening uh, episode with a couple of people from the Franciscan tradition. I was going to say that Scripture and experience are are, are the two that I feel speak more strongly to me. And, and that's grounded in a, in a variety of life circumstances. But uh, especially now, um, one part of the rule of, of the order that I belong to talks about 
being in this constant dialogue between studying the Gospels and living out of them and then taking the experiences that we've had and going back to the Gospels to sort of look for fresh inspiration and fresh um, understanding of where we are and what we're doing. But I think that actually all four of these areas really are important because they can serve to balance things. Um, there's a phrase I like to use with, um, with my parishioners about how um, Christians hopefully live in this beautiful tension between being weird and wonderful. And by weird, I mean unusual to the norms of the world. And by wonderful, I mean compassionate, kind, loving. And that there's a, there's a way in which our identity really sort of fails if we're only one. Uh, so if we only pursue being weird, which is not fitting into the world, uh, we can find ourselves in a pretty strange place um, that might even be detached from reality. But if we're only wonderful, then we start really obsessing with our relationship with God is about how we look to others uh, and not even necessarily about how we are or who we are or who God is. And so I think that what's really cool when we, when we find ourselves trying to live in the tension of two different things, some of the best theological conversation comes out of that. Uh, and in the same way, I think the four, the four components that Wesley talked about, uh, each of them is pulling one on the other so that hopefully uh, we end up with the best outcome. Uh, whether that's the best outcome for one community or the best outcome for, you know, a great number of churches. I think, especially theologically, I've been kind of looking at my own tradition for inspiration. And I think sometimes, I think in especially American theology, uh, and because of kind of Martin Luther's legacy of sola scriptura, I think we've kind of thrown out some of the things from tradition and we somehow think that we're doing theology new. And when, when you look at a lot of uh, the church fathers and other historical theologians, they've been asking the same questions. And sometimes like we don't need to reinvent the wheel. And sometimes maybe they even have better insights and answers uh, than we have. I think going forward, I, I do think we need to find this balance in how we understand theology and what, where, we, where we find it. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and it's, I think it's important that while um, we're always developing new understandings of what reason is, right? Uh, even just in my lifetime, the amount of learning that our uh, culture through science and psychology and, and neurobiology has learned about the brain and the way it works and the way we think and the way we feel, there's still something to be said for, do we, do we engage in theology in a way where our thinking about God and the thinking about the, about the world is actually grounded in reality, right? The, this has become, reality has become a pretty big debate in my lifetime. And I can remember a time where uh, no one rather really questioned whether or not existence was happening or whether or not, you know, the things we were observing were real. And it's been my experience that uh, over say the past 20 years that uh, more and more and more people uh, lift up this question about whether anything is real at all. And, you know, reason would seem to suggest that there are phenomena. They do happen. We can observe them. Uh, and that that's an important part of uh, thinking about God is to think about God in relationship to uh, what we can see and what we can um, 
understand about our environment around us. Yeah, I I think, you know, in uh, recently uh, with with everything going on um, here in the United States, was it um, it is January? Uh, what is it today? It's January thirteenth. You know, when we're in the mid middle of um, uh, after a, an insurrection at the Capitol, and a lot of them have used religious justification for for such things, and so. I think now more than ever, it's important that we understand what theology is and and where where it comes from, and have a balanced approach to to thinking through uh, what it is we believe about God and how we why we got there. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I think is really interesting in uh, an American context is that I think as a culture we've always struggled between um, two outcomes of theology. Uh, and there's these fancy academic words for them. One is orthopraxy and the other is orthodoxy. And they both have to do with something being right or sound. Uh, in one case, the praxy is about, has our theology led us to a sound practice, right? Is the thing that we're gonna do, the action we're gonna take sound and holy and good based on the way we discerned prayerfully how to do it. Um, and then of course, orthodoxy is the thing that we are saying or believing or clinging to, um, is that based in sound uh, understanding of God? Is it based in a sound understanding of God's will for the world? And have we listened carefully to that? And what I've often heard over the course of my life is these two things lifted up in opposition to one another. Um, uh, many, many people talking about how, well, it really only matters if we can figure out what to do. Um, and others saying, well, it really only matters if we can figure out what to believe. And uh, anyone who knows me uh, knows that I think that once we've fallen into a quick trap like that and said, oh, it's only A or B, um, there's a really good chance that C is the correct answer. Uh, and so, I, oh yeah, yeah, it's a chicken, <laughs> it's a chicken and egg question. Which comes first, you know? Yeah, a, a great example of, of kind of how the interplay of orthopraxy and orthodoxy work. Um, I heard a story of a uh, a Greek a church in Greece, and um, the people there would genuflect against against this blank wall, and it was, uh, you know, and and there was they were wondering why this was happening, and they had, they had someone come in and they they crept behind the wall and there happened to be an icon of, of Jesus behind this wall and it oh had been goodness. painted over white. And so, um, and it's just, it's just interesting. The, the things that, the things that we do can sometimes reflect a, a, a deeper uh, belief that maybe we're not aware of and vice versa. Um, is there a particular story of scripture that informs your kind of your own understanding of God? Oh boy. Yeah. There, well, there's lots, but <laughs> well, um, I mean, that that's always the case, isn't it? Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, you're asking me to go to a buffet and say, okay, but what kind of salad dressing do you like? Um, <laughs> I, I think that for me, I've always been very taken by the um, stories in scripture of people who are struggling and wrestling. Um, and, and not necessarily because I always experience my relationship with God or thinking about God as a struggle, but more so I appreciate the fact that 
stories like Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? His, his going home from a long time away. When he left, he was on the run and he had really cheated his brother and had done a lot of really sketchy things. And then when he was away, he did more sketchy things in order to get ahead in business. Uh, and it's not until he's finally ready to come home and be in the presence of his older brother who he's cheated that he comes to this profound moment of grappling and trying to understand really like, who am I? Who is God? Why did God take me on this route that I've gone this far? And uh, in a very serious way, am I about to go meet God? Because I think that Jacob's expectation was that his older brother Esau was still harboring such a grudge that when Jacob saw Esau, that that was going to be the end, um, that Esau would kill him. And uh, uh, Esau was a pretty powerful fighter and a really good hunter. So he didn't even have to get you know within arm's reach. He could have just picked off his brother with a bow and arrow. So with all of these things swirling in his head, he has this dream or vision encounter by the bank of a river with God where they are wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And neither one of them can get an advantage. And neither one of them can really pin the other. So it just keeps going and going. And when all is said and done, um, the angel actually cheats and hits him on the hip and, and, and uh, dislocates his leg partially. Um, and in the process, gives Jacob two things. One, a new name, Israel, which means wrestling with God. Uh, and two, a limp. So it's really funny that at a time in his life where the most advantageous thing he could do would be to run away from the person who's after him, he now has to limp. But I love the story because Jacob is in this situation where things are incredibly stressful for him. And yet, he's still seeking to understand where is God in all of this? And who am I supposed to be in light of who God is? Uh, and so I like the wrestling story because it demonstrates that you can do, you can do theology, you can do thinking about God and reflecting on God's purpose, even when everything is sort of a mess, um, which for me is really comforting right now because between the pandemic and the insurrection at the Capitol and worries about, you know, maybe other violence in our, in our uh, nation or in our communities. Um, I need to know that it's okay to do theology, to do thinking about God um, when everything seems to be sort of a mess. Yeah. Um, one of the things about scripture that I find comforting is that it's filled with a lot of people who are trying to do theology and figure out who God is, and they get it wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's comforting for us is that I think when a lot of people approach theology, they, they approach it from, I need to get everything right and all my ducks in a row, or, and if not, then maybe I'm going to hell or something. And I think that, uh, I mean, if the Bible teaches us anything, it's just that, um, a is that um, nobody's perfect, and we're all we're all trying to figure out who God is, and that there is grace in the midst of all that. Mm, mm. I think what's powerful about the conclusion to the story I was just talking about is that this new name, limping, wrestling with God, now severely 
uh, chastened person, <laughs> right, comes in contact with his older brother. And the first thing he does is hug him because he loves him and he misses him. And, and it's great because there's this uh, character who has been portrayed up until now as a very powerful kind of oaf becomes the one who acts like God, right? Who is loving, gracious, ready to welcome home, excited to see his brother, in spite of the fact that his brother's a jerk. And so if the, if the big hairy oaf can welcome home his brother in love, how much more can God welcome us home when we guess really badly? You know, we, even when we put our best effort forth, that we just don't really understand what God is up to or what God needs from us. Yeah. So w- when we're thinking about theology, you're a pastor at, uh, was it Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in, there in Rutland? And you have a, a preschool. And so how is, how do you do theology with uh, the, the youngest uh, among your community? Oh, yeah. So this is this is one of those areas where, um, in a funny way, I, I learned that I need to actually start with reason. And by reason, I don't mean abstract academic thinking, but rather understanding how children are at the same time full people, right, entitled to be treated with respect and with, um, um, with a lot of admiration, and at the same time, their brains haven't fully developed. And so what a two-year-old can grasp or what a five-year-old can grasp uh, is really very different both from each other, but also from me as an adult. And so I take a lot of cues, honestly, from Fred Rogers, uh, who I thought uh, was one of the best children's ministers really ever. The, uh, the pacing, the curiosity, the gentle engagement, the telling of stories, and then the connecting of important stories. Um, like we read from a children's story Bible, and then I connect that to stories that I tell with a puppet Um, whose name is Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is a sheep. And Ezekiel is very intentionally modeled after about a four-year-old. And so the kind of conversations I have with Ezekiel is like having a conversation with a four-year-old. So he's a very concrete thinker, still believes in sort of the magic of the world and that, you know, um, inanimate objects might come to life. And um, is someone who's really curious about patterns and frames and repetition. And so we try to build all of our conversations about who is God, how does God feel about us, and how can we feel about God in that framework. So the messages are often very positive, talk a lot about um, God as a creator, one who made me and them and everyone, Um, talk about how God provides and takes care, uh, because caretakers are such a huge part of their lives. And then we talk about sometimes um, when uh, when we mess up and what it looks like to know we've made a bad choice and then to be restored, maybe with our classmate, with our teacher, with our parents. Um, and so we look at very simple patterns of um, broken, broken community and repaired community um, through the eyes of children. And so we end up using all the different resources, their lives, the stories I tell with my puppet, the stories we read in scripture. But especially with children, I find that it's it's critical to begin with a, a profound understanding and interest in who they are and how they think so that what I say has meaning for them. Wow. 
I think we underestimate that that kids do think theologically. We kind of take theology and we make it kind of more of an academic thing rather than an everyday thing. Oh, definitely. And I always, I'm always really floored when I've had a couple of opportunities um, in my ministry career to baptize older children who could participate in the conversation about getting ready for baptism. And that's always been a very gratifying experience because I try to use a lot of those same premises that I just talked about in, in having a conversation with the child who is the, who is the baptismal candidate. And in one case, um, I knew that there was, I had a little girl, she was about a kindergartner. Anna was really fascinated with her mom's tattoos. And so when we were talking about the anointing, because that was the part that she seemed most anxious about, I said, this is like getting a cross tattoo, except that once it dries, only God can see it. And God will never forget that it's there. I then proceeded to get in quite a bit of trouble at the uh, community supper the, the following week because this kindergartner was running around telling all the old church ladies that she was getting an invisible tattoo for Jesus, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which made a few people gasp that somebody was going to let a kindergartner get a tattoo. But I think it was really cool how she had absorbed that and was then continuing to process it for herself and think about what would being anointed with the cross say about God? What would it say about her and what would it say about their relationship and the way that they would be connected forever? Well, I also imagine some of those older ladies probably will never think about uh, baptism the same way either. Right. Well, that's, that's you know, I, I hope that after they got over their shock <laughs> that, that they then could experience some delight that, that a child could help to unpack for them in very simple terms the profundity of this very simple act of being washed and being anointed. Yeah. So one of the other ministries that you have is um, you have a street ministry there. And um, what does theology look like in that context for you? Yeah, we do a lot of what we call sidewalk theology. Um, and, and in some ways, the chaplaincy we do on the street is not that different than the chaplaincy that somebody might do in a rest home or a prison or a hospital or, or a similar type setting where everyone's kind of fixed in place. Um, the big difference is that the people we encounter are wherever they happen to be, which might be on the porch of their house or on their fire escape, might be on coming up the sidewalk or sleeping under a bridge. But much in the same way, our first goal um, is simply to create a safe space make sure that people know that we're um, not only not a threat, but that we're there to help. And then to really listen to their stories first. So this would be an area where experience really kind of takes the, um, takes the lead. Though sometimes because uh, a person is an active churchgoer, maybe in a different denomination, the street ministry is Methodist and Lutheran in nature they might lead with their tradition, right? They might say, oh, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and here's my, here's my thoughts about that. And so sometimes we end up having conversations about the differences in tradition. Uh, but almost always after we've spent some time listening to that person and acknowledging and honoring their story, one of the things we feel is important is that if that person hasn't, uh, hasn't named the presence of God in their story, um, or especially if they've discounted the presence of God in their story, 
that we try to, what I like to call wonder aloud, right? Uh, Cause I don't think it's very fair to go up to someone and say, you know that time you found a dollar on the sidewalk? God put that dollar there. That feels kind of manipulative and weird. Yeah, yeah, that does. <laughs> you know, but I could say something like, I wonder how God was, you know, I wonder how God was at work when that happened. Um, or if someone has named perhaps the absence of God, uh, we had this delightful woman who uh, told us, and I won't tell the whole story because it's quite long, but she told the story of how she had become um, a surrogate daughter to her elderly neighbor who had no one else to care for her and um, journeyed with this neighbor through her entire cancer treatment. And it all began with a random conversation between two neighbors who had um, fire escapes that faced each other. So they saw, you know, they saw each other when they both left the house. And so she told us this whole story about this faithfulness to a stranger, her compassion, her service, and her steadfastness. And then proceeded to apologize to the street chaplains that she hadn't been to church in a long time. And, and I could almost sense that she was making this perfunctory confession because part of what we were out there to do was sort of judge people for not participating in traditional um, faith communities. And I still can't tell you where the words exactly came from, but I just said, you know what? We've just had church right here on the sidewalk and you were the preacher because you were the one that was offering the testimony um, about how God had shaped this opportunity for you to become family to a neighbor. Um, and I tell you, the way her demeanor, her face, her energy changed when she heard that was, I hope it was a gift to her. She seemed delighted and joyful, but it certainly was a gift to me to be able to sort of um, name God's action um, at a time when someone was sort of saying uh, that God was not present in their life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Th those are those are profound moments. I think I think a, a lot of theology is um, helping people name God in ways that maybe they haven't before, or allowing God to be present in ways that they hadn't thought of before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then also to, um, I think there's some sort of secondary work in there if the relationship is something that persists where there's an opportunity to think about, okay, here's a here's an understanding of God. Now, how does that fit with like the way you're taking care of yourself? Or how does that fit with some other some other practice that you're doing? So you're a Lutheran pastor and you're also a member of the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans, both of which have vastly rich traditions. How do those traditions inform your faith and your theology? Yeah, I'd say that there's a there's definitely an area of profound overlap um in that both of those traditions are very they're very focused on incarnation that is um things being present in the real world in the flesh they're very focused on the sacraments gifts from god of baptism and holy communion that help us to to see god at work uh, and also uh, grounded in a sense that God is capable of showing up in the material world, uh, and not just in the person of Jesus, but um, through our neighbors, through our encounters, through our relationships, um, through our friends, our families. And so I, the overlap there is, I think, kind of how I, how I work living in tra two traditions, because there's enough that's common that's shared there that I think that really works together. And then 
where they diverge, I think that uh, I tend to take some of the stuff that I really cherish about my Lutheran tradition and let that be a lens to help me understand how I'm participating in this other community. Um, so for example, uh, as Lutherans, we take very seriously that baptism is more than just a way to get your name on the parish register, that baptism is entering into a lifelong relationship with God and a lifelong relationship with the church and is the beginning of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to help us be guided into God's purposes. So part of the way I understand uh, participating in an intentional religious community is that for me, that's a, that's a specific way to live out my baptismal vocation, my, my calling from God to serve the world. And so it's sort of the question of, okay, I'm called to serve, but how? So it's not something that's added on top, right, of baptism, but rather it's an expression of it. And, and so I think that there's been a lot of areas where I let the dialogue between the two traditions help me understand how to participate in both, um, sometimes because they reinforce one another, and other times because I'm able to understand one in light of the other. So does that, does that sort of get at your question? Yeah. Um, if you can name like a particular thing about the Lutheran tradition and then the Franciscan tradition that helps you frame who God is for you. Yeah, I would say one of the powerful concepts that I think comes out of both, uh, though it gets different emphases, is the importance of Jesus' gift of self at the cross. And that without that gift of self at the cross, it would be very hard for us to understand who God is. And so for Lutherans, we tend to use language around the theology of the cross. Um, sometimes we use the plain talk of, you know, call a thing what it is. And so when we see the cross, we name it honestly that it is, that it is sadness, it is suffering, it is injustice. And at the same time, it is God's loving response to the world, right? So the world throws the worst it can at God through Jesus. And what comes back from that is begging for God's forgiveness, cries of um, reliance on God, uh, and a desire to be united with God. In a similar way, Francis's conception of the poverty of God, um, this idea that if God is the one who has everything in the universe, then what a powerful sign of love it is that God leaves everything behind. First, to make a creation. Second, to be in the creation in the person of Jesus. Third, to be in uh, the world giving away, right? These incredible spiritual gifts. Uh, Jesus never uh, takes out his square reader and says, okay, that was, you know, three miracles. That'll be $37.95, please. Um, Jesus gives away these spiritual gifts. And then finally, Jesus gives himself away at the cross. And, and again, there's this incredible witness of love and mercy um, in response to sort of the worst that we can do. And, and sort of understood in their best light, I love how these two traditions help me to understand the gift of the cross in a way that is, that is truly a gift, right? That is a, um, a merciful response to an unmerciful act which then takes us out of the realm of 
needing to make the cross uh, like a necessary punishment or that God is abusing God's own son uh, or any of these sort of some um, mutations of theology that sometimes come out of the way people talk about the cross. For me, both of those traditions feed into a very positive, powerful image of what the cross is. And for me, then it becomes uh, an icon of love. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Uh, well, uh, John Michael, thank you for this wonderful conversation about theology. It was a little bit rambling, but I, I think we, we got quite a gist of what it means to think theologically and, and how uh, theology is really quite all-encompassing. We're always doing and thinking about theology in a variety of different ways. Do you have anything else to share with us uh, before we close out? Uh, no, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to participate in this project. And I look forward to hearing what the other guests and conversation partners have to say. It's really exciting to me to think about how we can take what we did here today and apply this same sort of beautiful thinking about God to particular topics, because all of human life can be done in conversation with what God is up to. Well, uh, John, would you like to close us with a prayer? Sure. <sighs> These are words from Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. Oh, gracious God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We ask that you would bless us as we go our separate ways. May this conversation be a blessing to others. And may our hearts come to a restful peace in you, not so that we could ignore the world, but precisely so that we can be in it and ready for what comes next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, I enjoyed our conversation. Same here. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you for listening and exploring theology with us. You can continue the conversation by subscribing on Anchor, where we are hosted, and we're distributed via Spotify, Apple Music, and other podcast distributors. You can find us on the web at atheologyof.xyz. Our intro and outro tracks are produced by Ampi Real Glow.